Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Ree, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare, technology, and consumerism is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And in this episode, we'll be discussing clinical trials. In particular, we'll be focusing on the lack of access and diversity in those trials and how new entrants are coming into the market to help solve the issue. And to discuss the topic with me is Del Smith, co-founder and CEO of Aquinate, whose mission is to educate and engage diverse individuals to be able to make informed decisions about genomic research and clinical trial participation. Del, thanks for joining us today. And Charles, I appreciate the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to start Aquinate? Sure. So as you mentioned, Del Smith, I have the pleasure of serving as the co-founder and CEO of Acclidate. Um, my other co-founder, of course, is Tiffany Whitlow. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about our mission, but I, I think it's really important to kind of talk about the origin story for Acclidate. For me, it's very personal. When I was younger, my mom was a healthcare professional. She spent her entire career working in hospitals. And at some point in her career, she wanted to move into health, home health care. She wanted to be closer to the patients. And it was through that process that she unfortunately contracted tuberculosis. And she was in between jobs when she contracted it. So she didn't have insurance. And here we were in Atlanta and no insurance in this, this disease. And unfortunately, although we were in and out of hospitals, my mom passed away when I was only 20 years old. And it was shortly thereafter that I actually found out that there was a trial going on in the area looking for people with drug-resistant strains of tuberculosis, but we had no idea. Uh, and so that really stuck with me. Took some time to uh, go into a career myself of health information systems and work for companies trying to figure out better ways to link these technology solutions for better outcomes with the hopes of that not happening again. And so that really was a genesis of Acclinate. And I took some turns throughout my career, started up a couple of tech companies, um, spent some time. I tell people I'm a recovering business school dean. Right before starting Acclinate, I spent almost seven years as a dean of a business school at an HBCU. But it was at that point in life where you say, listen, this, this issue has not gotten any better. And if, if no one's going to solve it, then I need to be the one to step in and try to come up with a solution. Yeah, no, and and I can see, you know, the, the drive that, that what, what's moving you here. And, you know, so I want to read a couple of stats uh, that were part of, um, you know, uh, Cowan's uh, ESG primer on uh, clinical trial diversity that are the, the Cowan Healthcare team uh, we published a, a couple months back. And uh, we'll try to have a link in the description uh, for people to click on and read uh, later on. Uh, you know, so according to the CDC, only about 5% of Americans participate in clinical research trials. Uh, despite nearly one half of Americans suffering from a chronic condition and about 10% of adults who have been diagnosed with cancer, and this is according uh, to the CDC. Uh, of that 5%, uh, 76% are white, only 7% are black, uh, and 11% Asian, and only 13% identify as Hispanic. So, so in other words, not only do very few people participate in clinical trials, but minorities are are woefully under, underrepresented. You know, how, how did we get here? Well, I'll specifically speak to the underrepresentation of minority groups in clinical trials. This is a space that we really spend our time leaning into. And what I can tell you is that there is a 
tremendous amount of mistrust that exists within our African Americans and Latinx and Hispanic and even Asian communities when it comes to clinical trial participation here in the US. Many people hear about the stories of this Tuskegee study and they kind of point to that as a seminal study as to uh, some of the reasons for this mistrust. But I'll, I'll tell people it's, it's really uh, a general mistrust of the healthcare system overall because you have a group of people that when they look at their outcomes and they compare and look at their treatment, they see differences and they see disparities and they see inequities. And so you have this that exists in general, and then all of a sudden now you have part of the system saying, hey, would you like to be part of a clinical trial? For this particular group, while some in the general population would say, I'm not sure, uh, if you look at our communities of color in particular, they're saying like, hell no, I'm not gonna be part of this. And I think that's why you're seeing these numbers represented that the way you just expressed. If we think about this current model in particular, and you're, you're saying a lot of mistrust, you know, it's surprising that the, the model is failing so poorly. I mean, you know, why do you think that might be? Well, I think it's because it's transactional in nature. The model is very transactional in nature. It's coming to you and saying, hey, Charles, you don't know me, but would you like to be part of a clinical trial? And if you say, I'm not sure, or I don't think so, it's like the current model, I leave you and I go to the next person just to try to find that one entity, even though you still may have your same issues or same ailments. And, and so really what needs to happen in this process is that we move from being transactional in nature to being relational in nature. And that requires more time, that requires more investment, and that requires a genuine desire to see that person on the other side of the table be better, to see their condition improve, regardless of whether they actually take part in your trial or not. And we're not quite there yet as an industry. And you know, when we think about improving you know, both access and diversity. You know, I, you know, I, I think most people would say the, the, the drug and or at least those in the drug and medical device industry would all agree, right? That improving uh, access and diversity should be of high importance. And, you know, I, I would point our, our Cowan survey of drug and device makers showed that a majority were taking steps to address the issue, but it seems like, you know, they're still falling short. So, you know, when you speak with, um, you know, drug makers or, or device makers, you know, how are they typically viewing the issue of diversity in their trials? I think you've seen a lot of change in the way that they're thinking about and even approaching diversity in their trials. Part of that stems, of course, from the recent guidance from the FDA. And, you know, one of the things that I think is driving a lot of this today is the fact that there is a regulatory environment that's saying, if you do not have adequate representation in your trials, it doesn't matter that you've spent a billion dollars plus on your, on your development of your drug, it's gonna have to be uh, the trial done again, or you're gonna have to go back and do a, a major part of it again. And that means money, right? Significant dollars. And so I think there's a, a significant impetus on, on drug manufacturers and sponsors now to address this issue. Uh, we'd like to think it was because they understand that we need to make sure that drugs have the same efficacy and don't have negative side effects simply based upon a person's race or ethnicity or a certain demographic. Um, but the reality is that that's not always the case that drives drives things. But it is a new day now, and people are are more motivated to to do something. And you see the sponsors um, responding to this in different ways. Some, for example, are looking at this from an access issue, and they're saying we need to have more clinical trial sites in uh, places that we have historically not uh, had access to, right? So instead of the large academic medical centers in the middle of a major city, uh, maybe you need to look at some 
uh, rural sites and sites and places that are closer to the demographic you're trying to get to, to ease the barrier of access to people for the trials. You see some sponsors that are looking at this and saying, listen, we need to ensure that we have healthcare professionals and clinical research associates that look like the people that we're engaging with. And so uh, that will allow us to be more culturally sensitive and aware of some of the issues that may take place that may uh, have someone be hesitant to take part in the trial. And, and then other sponsors are actually recognizing that sustained engagement in the community is key. And you can, you can have sites and rural communities right next to your demographic. You can even have decentralized trials that almost bring the trials to someone's doorstep. But unless someone feels comfortable, has a level of trust in that process, they still won't open the door or they won't walk across the street to the site. And so some sponsors are understanding that there's no way you're gonna get around this issue of trust without having some level of sustained engagement with these communities. Yeah, I mean, you talk about trust and I know that you know, when we've talked in the past, this is this has come up often is, you know, what are some of the ways, what are the ways, some of the ways that drug and device makers, you know, have been doing to try to build that trust with underrepresented groups? Well, you see a lot of so-called partnerships and affiliations with uh, churches, historically black colleges and universities. Um, affinity groups that exist. And we think that's really important, right? You're going to the, the place where you're going to find those communities that you want to engage with. But I, I, I put on my business hat and I say, is it really in the best interest of a pharmaceutical company to make a significant investment trying to do that sustained engagement in communities themselves? Right, and or is it a better model for them to focus on efficient drug development through the process of discovery and, and trials and, and marketing and, and find opportunities to partner with entities that do that job better than them. And so I think what you find sometimes is the recognition that you do need to separate the engagement from the recruitment. You can't just go straight to the recruitment, but sometimes what happens with these with these relationships with churches and, and different groups is that now you've accessed the community, but you have really no way to tie that uh, the, the, the capital, if you should, if you can say that, from that engagement with the community to the potential for someone showing up on your trial. And so I think that's why Sometimes sponsors get frustrated because they're saying, listen, we're making these investments, we're, we're, we're making these connections to the communities, but we're still not seeing a change in our numbers when it comes to our uh, representation diversity of our clinical trial participants. What have you seen maybe from companies that have done it wrong? Like, you know, what, what, you know where, where have you seen it kind of go spectacularly poorly? Well, I, I hate to say this, but unfortunately, there's a, there's a lot of examples of companies that, that are not doing it the right way. I'll say that I'm hesitant sometimes to use the wrong language, right? So again, one of the, the examples is uh, cr creating a site in a community where it's like, these are the demographics now, right? Whereas historically it was like, listen, we wanna get 10% minority enrollment in this trial. And the reality is there's not a 10% uh, community of color within a 10 mile radius of that site. So they've gotten wise and said, okay, we're gonna put the site in a, in a community where we have those demographics but they have the same exact people, the same exact processes, and they've had uh, little to no actual engagement with the communities around them. They're just expecting that if they come there to that community, people will just show up. And so, you know, that's the case. You clearly see some companies that are just simply trying to change the pictures and the language on their material to be more culturally sensitive uh, and appropriate, thinking that that's going to do it. 
But you know, the reality is just because someone sees a, a picture of someone that looks like them doesn't mean that that engenders trust in the process. So there's lots of things that, that people are trying, some that are more effective than others. Uh, but um, yeah, those are some examples of the things that when we see them, we just absolutely know they're not going to work. You mentioned, you know, creating sites in, in areas, and maybe that's a, that's a start. You know, obviously, when we look at drug makers, a lot of them outsource the clinical trial process itself to clinical research organizations or CROs. What kind of role do you see them playing here to drive uh, diversity and, uh, and access? Sponsors have a tremendous opportunity to put some more pressures on the CROs to uh, come up with some solutions for this. Uh, it, you know, historically, the CROs have operated in a sense of what is the most efficient way and the fastest way to get the first person in to this trial and to get this trial completed. And they haven't been incentivized or rewarded or even held accountable to ensuring that they find a way to meet these diversity numbers. I think sponsors have an opportunity to turn to the CROs and say, listen, CROs, this is what our standard is. This is what our requirement is. Let us know how we can assist you with getting that done. But please understand that we're not going to be okay with you turning in data that's not representative. And then, of course, you know, not to kick the can down the road to the CROs, but it, now it's going to require the CROs to think differently in terms of the vendors that they engage with, uh, in terms of the way that they operate, and getting them to say, listen, we, we know that this problem has existed for decades, and some small tweak in our messaging materials or a small tweak in our budgeting for marketing is not going to move the needle, needle uh, significantly. So I think it's, but I also think it, the sites have an opportunity as well too, right? To demonstrate that they are doing the work to actually figure out ways to engage in the community. So I think if you have the sponsors and the CROs and the sites and all the vendors and the relationships around that ecosystem working together to try to address this issue, you're gonna find some different ways to approach this and you're gonna actually move the needle. I mean, when we talk about this, uh, you know, the most efficient way to, to get from point A to point B, you know, we're also talking about often, you know, billion dollar potential drugs on the line here. And, and sometimes, you know, everyone talks about the, you know, the biopharma industry as being conservative, right? You know, we're going to use what works. We knew that worked before. Uh, we're just going to do it again because we know at least, you know, we're not, you know, people don't, they don't want to take risk. You know, where, where does that leadership then have to come from to start changing it? Is it, is it at the sponsor level? And, and, and oftentimes, you know, I, know, I think we talked about it before in the past, right? Maybe the C-suite says, yes, this is what we want to do. But, at, you know, at the front line, the guy that is in charge or the, the woman is that's in charge of, you know, getting a, a drug across the line. You know, that's their PL, you know, that, that's their career. You know, they, they don't want to fail too, right? So uh, how, how do you get that change? You know, wh wh where does it have to start? And, and how, do, how, you know, how, do, how do you think organizations need to drive that? You know, I know we've talked about the FDA and we may talk about that some more, but I think that's critical in this process, right? All, all roads lead to the FDA in terms of the approval. So seeing that guidance and thinking that maybe uh, in the final guidance, there's more teeth to that is a significant way to, to, to move that needle. If you ask any executive of a major pharmaceutical company three years ago, what are your top three things that keep you up at night? I doubt that representation in clinical trials would have emerged as one of those three. I would say if you ask that same question today to those executives, there's a very good chance that finding ways to achieve representation and diversity of clinical trials is one of those areas because there are significant implications to the bottom line uh, if it's not done correctly. 
And so now you have the top that has the impetus and you can look through any major pharmaceutical companies, strategic plans now and vision statements and you'll see diversity in clinical trials being mentioned somewhere in there. But you brought up a good point, Charles, right? Where does the rubber meet the road? The clinical operations team, right? The frontline clinical research associates. And so I think there's still work to be done to ensure that the executive strategy and, and, and drive to do this um, equates all the way down to the uh, uh, clinical operations level. But we see, even on a weekly basis, I think we're seeing more and more of that connectivity take place. Yeah, and, and you know, right, we've touched on the FDA a couple of times, right, and just to, to bring listeners up to speed, right, that, you know, this past April, uh, the FDA released guidance requesting companies to have a diversity plan ahead of their phase two meeting, right? So, you know, obviously, you know, if you're in a, in a site, you know, a process here, you, know, you, you got to start thinking ahead because that, you know, you know, that conversation is coming. It's not quite a mandate, but it sounds like, you know, is there an expectation that, um, you know, that is a mandate, that that will be a mandate by the FDA? I think you have two pressures that the FDA is probably experiencing right now. One is from the industry and the, the pharma industry, which is saying, listen, we, we're on board, but allow us to figure out a way and, and please stop short of mandating any specific goals or numbers. And then I think you have individuals that understand how important this issue is and that are, that are not directly within a pharma who are saying, listen, we know like with anything, if you have something be a should versus a must, or if you don't put numbers behind something, it's hard to hold people accountable uh, who are pushing the FDA saying, listen, the, the draft guidance is great, but when you come up with your final guidance, you need to be more specific in saying what must be done and provide some, some idea as to what quantifiable metrics must be met in order for this to be acceptable. And still though, right, the FDA has already, I think, pushed back on some trials where, you know, they start getting a, a lot more enrollment you know, overseas and, you know, and apart from the U.S., you know, when you start going into Europe or into Asia, you start getting a lot more, you know, homogenous populations, uh, you actually start losing diversity. You know, in, in a sense, then this is a, a real opportunity, though, right, to uh, bring underrepresented groups into the research process because, you know, the FDA is asking for it, um, you know, maybe besides the U.K., uh, you know, there's not really countries with, you know, significant diversity you know, on the ground, um, you know, how, how do you look at this opportunity, not only for, for groups, but then, you know, for companies such as yourself, as you're, you know, trying to help sponsors navigate that? Clearly, there's a tailwind here for companies like ours. Uh, we, we specialize in accessing and engaging communities of color so they can make informed decisions about clinical trial participation. And yeah, I know when we started the company two and a half years ago, pre-COVID, pre-civil social unrest, pre-FDA, uh, it was a very different conversation we were having with pharma at the time. Uh, and, and now, you know, frankly, we've, we've got significant opportunities coming our way. Uh, I didn't leave my office until eight o'clock last night. I was in my office at five o'clock this morning, just trying to get the request out for proposals out to people. So that's, that's a good thing. And so I think there's opportunities here, but I, I, I know we're still struggling with this understanding that this relational versus transactional way of doing business takes more time and it takes more investment. And it means starting before it's time to start enrolling your trial. Uh, it means uh, understanding that this hard work has to be done by someone and that hard work takes 
takes an investment that may be different from what you're traditionally seeing. And I think people are still coming to grasp with that right now. And I think uh, that is, you see some sponsors who are understanding that and they're making, taking that into account, both in terms of time and money. And you see some sponsors who are still holding on to the way things were trying to see if they can do this in ways that is more cost efficient and, and more timely, quote unquote, for both of those. Let's talk then more about Acclinate. You know, we've, we've touched on it briefly here and there, uh, but talk to us about how your business model works and, you know, how you work with, uh, you know, both the communities and, and with uh, sponsors. Now, the best way to think about, about our business is like a double-sided marketplace. On one side, we have a community engagement platform and methodology, and we call that Now Included. And our Now Included community is us saying to our communities of color, now's the time for us to be included in discussions about our health. Now's the time to be included in discussions about clinical trial participation. So it's our way of educating, engaging, and empowering our communities of color to be able to make informed health decisions, decisions about clinical trial participation. But that process, Charles, generates two things for us. One, it builds trust, and two, it creates data. And it's that trust and that data that when we combine it in the right platform, allows us to know when is the most appropriate time and to whom should we present the opportunity to take part in the trial. And that's the value that we bring to the pharmaceutical companies. They're able to then engage with us. And by working with us, we're able to then both do the sustained engagement to build communities around certain therapeutic areas and disease states. And then based upon our system telling us that we've had enough time and trust now is the appropriate time to present that trial to the right person. And so that's what we do for pharmaceutical companies. We don't hand over data. We don't do a direct advertisement just to get people to sign up like a traditional method. It's about uh, knowing when and to whom is, uh, we need to make that request. Talk a little bit more then about the now included platform, maybe in the role of technology uh, to be able to understand, you know, when is the right time uh, to, you know, to, to reach out to somebody. Walk us through that a little bit more. Yeah, I think the best way to talk about the platform is through our algorithms. We have something that's called a participation probability index. And that participation probability index uses various characteristics to determine uh, what is the likelihood that someone will respond to being part of a trial. And of course, there's some very basic things such as location. If a trial is going on in Atlanta at Emory, our system is smart enough to know that if not to reach out to someone in Seattle, Washington to be part of that trial, unless it's a stage three uh, oncology trial and you know that person just has to come there a couple of times for some treatment. Um, but, but then it's, it's more sophisticated. We even take some social determinants of health data uh, in that as well too, to make our calculations to things. What gets tricky for us, however, is that if we just relied on data on who, who has historically taken part in trials to feed our models, our models would then just exasperate uh, producing who is going to take part in the trial. So we have to do some training of our models to accommodate the fact that we're trying to get to a certain outcome representation. What does that look like within our, our community that we serve? But again, it all comes down to our community. Uh, our platform and our system is only as powerful as our community is. And so for us, engagement is synonymous with trust. The more that someone engages with our community, the more times they come there and they make comments, the more times they forward a post to a friend, the more time they come in and they actually spend reading articles or uploading their videos, sharing their health stories. Our system's able to know that this, this person is leaning in 
They have a low element of trust and comfort with this community. And so, and this particular issue is really one that they lean into. And what we found statistically is really interesting. About 24% of the people that actually respond to a trial comes from a friend or family member on our platform. And so, which is the reason why we don't just utilize and rely on electronic medical records to determine who should take part in the trial. We know some people do that. But for us, particularly in our communities that we face, sometimes it's a granddaughter looking at this information to present to a grandmother. Sometimes it's a um, it's a brother looking at providing this information to his sister who may be going through a certain disease or Ill illness. So that's why community is important for us. And that's why uh, we say that we're a combination of both tech and touch. The tech is the platform that allows us to make the determination and to actually talk to people. The touch is us ensuring that we are engaging with communities. And I will say this, it is not just technology on the community side. We've done things like sponsored Little League um, teams, uh, trophy celebrations, because the coach there was the trusted entity in that community. And we knew that if we provided opportunities to benefit the, the coach, and the coach would then allow us or the coach would stand up and say, listen, you know what, parents, some of you missed your child's games because you had health issues. And it's important for us now to, to be empowered, engaged about our health so you can make this, your son's or your daughter's games. And so go to now include it, figure out what resources are available there to help you become healthier. And these are things that we do that, that is high touch, less tech, um, sometimes more difficult to scale, but nonetheless, really important when it comes to reaching people where they are and not just relying on technology to do that. And maybe just sticking with the tech part, right? When we think about when someone's leaning in, you know, is, is the platform measuring what that engagement looks like to know when that person's ready? And without that, you wouldn't ever present that person to a sponsor. Is that, is that the way to think of it? That That is correct. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really important. We tell our sponsors that, listen, we really would like to have at a minimum three months opportunity to engage with someone in a new community or, or in a new disease state before we present the trial to them. And this is, goes back to the issue of time, right? If they come and they engage with us, they say, we're behind in our enrollment, right? We're 70% through our enrollment and we're not hitting our numbers. We look at them and we say, listen, you know, that is, that is really a worst case scenario for us <laughs> because now you're looking for a clinical trial recruitment company and that is what we are not. We're not a clinical trial recruitment company. Uh, and so when the sponsor has the opportunity to say, oh, I get it. So we know we're going to have several trials in this one therapeutic area uh, come down the pipeline. We need to build that community and that trust now uh, so that when the time comes, your system knows which of those community members to present that trial to. Let's get, get started. And we're having more and more sponsors that are seeing that and understanding that. But, you know, on our community side, people opt in, they understand that they're opting in to be able to be part of this community and they're opting in to be able to have us present opportunities to them that could be a benefit to them and clinical trials could be one of those options. But no, no, no community member is ever in a situation where they just get bombarded with trial opportunity after trial opportunity after trial opportunity, because we know that's a recipe for failure and it goes back to a transactional nature, which is what we are not. And when you talk about engagement, right? You know, people engage because they feel they're getting value, right? I'm, I'm going to look at something because there's something that, I, you know, I, I take away from it. What are some of those tools that you are providing to the community? Um, and what are the ones that you find that are really most that, you know, you, you see a lot more traction with? 
Interestingly enough that what we found is an element of affective engagement. And I use the term affective as an A-F-F-E-C-T-I-B-E. And the traditional thought is that, listen, we need to give people more cognitive engagement, more information. Here's information about Alzheimer's. Here's information about MS. Here's information about bronchitis and all these statistics. But what we've been able to find out over the years is that it's the time when we say, share your story about a family member that has Alzheimer's, that people lean into that, people review that, they engage with that, they comment on that. And then we have an opportunity to say, did you know this statistic about Alzheimer's? Did you know it impacts this, your particular group and demographic more so than, than others? Do you know that it's often misdiagnosed or diagnosed later? And we kind of give people these facts and information that they wouldn't otherwise get. But it's, it's, it didn't start with an informational engagement. It started with an, with an emotional or relational engagement. And that's what we do in our process that makes it so different. And, and frankly, I think that's why so many of the other entities, in particular pharma that tries to do this work themselves, has a challenge because their general mindset is one of information and cognitive discussions versus really understanding lived experiences and, and sharing those lived experiences with people and, and seeing how people lean, in, lean into that. So it's essential, it's basic human behavior is what we, what we really tee off of. And so now you, you, build the, the, you build the community, you're in, in a market for you know, some number of months. Is that you go into a community because you have the initial investment from a sponsor or is that you, you are you know, already invested into a number of communities and then, you know, uh, a sponsor can come in and say, hey, look, you know, we, we have these kind of candidate tr- uh, drugs uh, in development. You know, these are sort of the people we're kind of looking for. Can you help us? Yeah, m- maybe talk about the other side of the model. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, currently the way it exists right now, with us being still a fairly new company, much of what we do is in response to a sponsor saying, this is my therapeutic area, or this is my disease state, or this is my trial and my indication. These are the locations where I have sites. Um, Do you have community already in those spaces? And if not, can you build community the way that we do it so well? And a lot of times, because of the combination of the disease state and those locations, we don't have existing community or at least enough numbers. And we have to go through that process of building it. And we were really good at that. What we want to do as a company, and we're actually going through a round of funding right now, uh, fundraising with this particular uh, uh, point with that is to start being proactive about building the communities uh, before pharma even gets to us. So we already understand the disease states that have a higher prevalence within our communities of color. We already understand where the majority of our communities of color are dispersed within the United States. Uh, then we can start building those communities already. And we think that it actually benefits pharma and it benefits us to have it to where when the sponsor comes to us and says, listen, we want to run this particular trial in uh, this particular city. We can say, you know what, we've already got 60,000 people engaged in that community around that particular disease state. And we can already tell you that X percentage of those people will probably lean in uh, to this trial if given the opportunity. Yeah, no, and that, that, sounds, like, that sounds like the, the perfect model in, in down the road. Maybe in the short run, though, talk about some of the results that you have been able to generate for sponsors. Um, I, th- I think there's some primary outcome measures and there's some kind of more secondary measures that, that we're finding is very valuable. Of course, the primary outcome measures have to do with 
how many of the people that we engage with ultimately end up enrolling in a trial. And I can tell you, we've got some conversion numbers that really varies based upon the trial and the disease state and the indications and the inclusion exclusion characteristics. But you know, we can get to a point where we start to understand what that ratio is. And, and typically we're around 12% conversion rate on average. And that allows us to know if your end state is, I need X amount of people from this particular uh, demographic, we know how many people we have to engage on the front end in order to get to that. But I think also what we're finding in, front, in terms of uh, an out, a secondary outcome here is that it's the idea that these communities still exist even after the trials are over with. We still stay engaged with the communities. And so we are seeing changes in people's perceptions about taking part in trials. We're seeing changes in people's willingness to take part in trials, uh, whether they actually took part in the trial or not, because part of what we do in that process of engaging with them is help them feel more comfortable with the clinical trial process in general. And we believe that's gonna have significant uh, payoff down the road uh, when, when pharma needs to engage later on down the road. So again, short-term benefit is we're able to see specific numbers of increased diversity in the trials as a result, greater leads for the trials. And then I think longer term, we're going to be able to see a larger pool and pipeline of individuals that are willing to take part in trials from the very onset. Have you seen anybody that might have passed on a trial the first time, but, you know, was engaged, right, seemed ready to, you know, to at least to present a trial, but maybe they passed on that. And, but then the, the next time they, they decided, you know what, I'll, I'll, you know, I will participate. You know, we did. And, and, and we've noticed one instance had to do with consent forms and an actual process for doing some pre-screening of biomarkers. And I think when the protocol was developed and a process was developed, people didn't necessarily put themselves in the shoes of people that had to travel and to, they, they had to do this long consent, they had to do this pre-screening of biomarkers and then the, the, the screen fail rate was tremendously high. And from working with the sponsor, we were then able to say, you know, is it possible from a medical standpoint to move this this pre-screening or this biomarker at a different phase in the process so that we can get people in and get them comfortable and get them started in the process. And when they made that change, we saw some people that had dropped out, come back in and say, okay, I'm willing to do it now at this point in time. And I think that's a great, another example of kind of this secondary measures and outcomes that we get from this process is the insights that we get from engaging with the community and being able to hear from them first and foremost and saying, listen, the reason I didn't complete it after the consent form is because of X, Y, Z, and then be able to have enough of that data input to provide it to the sponsor. I think that's something they haven't had before in the past. Yeah. So, you know, maybe last thoughts here. What should we look for in the future that would indicate both, you know, Aquinaid and the industry is succeeding in improving access and diversity, you know, in our, in our, in our clinical trials? One of the things we put on our investor deck slide is we plot the metrics in terms of representation since 2008 till I think 2019. And it basically looks flatline for our communities of color, which has been no change. I'm a quantifiable person. I think what's gonna happen is if we're successful, you're gonna to start to see an uptick and you're gonna to start to plot this and you're gonna see over time that there has been improvements. And anything short of that, I think is really lip service uh, and and um, so we'll be keeping a close eye on the numbers. I think everybody should be keeping a close eye on the numbers over the next three to five years. Yeah, that's great. And I'm looking really forward to uh, to your success and uh, you know all the work that you're doing here. And you know, Dell really want to appreciate you 
you know, taking the time to, to be a part of, uh, you know, the podcast here. Well, again, I appreciate the invitation. It was a pleasure talking to you, Charles. Great. Thanks, Del, and thank everyone for joining us uh, for this uh, episode and look forward to having you join us on, on a future Account Future Health podcast. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.